I'm here with Ali Kafari, and we just did a Life on the Rock on the, for the Divine Mercy Academy, of which you're the founder and president. So we just wanted to continue our conversation a little bit. I was interested to know just some of the, the challenges, because I just heard the numbers on a podcast, like uh, Catholic schools, 1965, were five and a half million, now they're one and a half million, and and uh, with the loss of religious sisters, the operating costs and tuition have just gone through the roof. So you're doing a bold thing, 144 students, K through eight. What are some of the big challenges? The maybe surprising and expected ones you've had. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the, the greatest challenge for us has been uh, location. Uh, and mm. so our first year, we were in a little Lutheran church. Uh, we called 30 uh, church buildings at, or churches, and, and there was only one that said yes, and it was this little, little Lutheran church uh, in Severna Park, and they were fabulous, and they mm. just opened up their facility to us. Um, and then COVID hit, and then they restricted their um, the usage of the space, and we had to move. And then we were homeless. This happened in August, and we were homeless for two months as we were looking all around. Uh, and we petitioned mm -hmm. Archbishop Laurie, and he allowed us to go into um, a convent in a parish that was not too far from there in St. Jane Francis de Chantal. And so we were able to spend uh, a year in the parish um, uh, convent. And, uh, and then the school, uh, it was, which is next to a school building, the school closed, and then they started a preschool, and then that closed, and that opened the school building, and we were able to go in there. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it's been a year-to-year -year, uh, lease since then, although we've just signed a two-year lease. Mm -hmm. um, no guarantee that we have a facility after that. Uh, and so so location's been one, and the other's been uh, financial. You know, when you're starting from scratch, we started with no money. We just started, we bootstrapped um, the organization. And so trying to hire uh, teachers, uh, trying to pay for books, all of those things while uh, attracting students uh, has have been, um, it's been a challenge, but um, some heroic people have stepped up and, uh, you know, accepted the call to, to teach at getting paid 50% or 75% of what they could be making in a archdiocesan school or even a public school. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so financial uh, and location are, are top two. And I would, I don't know, I would think like there would be a great demand for that building you're in. Mm -hmm. I would think that the Archdiocese would be thankful that, hey, we've got a use for it and everything, yeah. but is, are people clamoring to get into that building? <laughs> I wouldn't say so, but uh, from the parish's perspective, they want to make sure they're making the best use of that. And, yeah. and it seems, yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me that yeah. uh, a Catholic school would be the right spot uh, in the Catholic school mm -hmm. building. But there are some other considerations they've thought about, some elderly housing or some Section 8 housing. Those are some things that they mm -hmm. discussed putting in there. Um, and really, it's their building to do what they choose with. And, and so we're grateful for the time that we've been able to be in there. And you have room to expand in there? Is it more than... Yeah, that's school. At one point, I've held 550 students. Wow. Uh, yeah, we're a third of that, so or less. Yeah. And so we can grow to full size in there, although, you know, we're sharing the space with the, with the parish. And so, yeah. uh, so we've got some limitations on the spaces that we can use. But every year they've been gracious enough to add a few rooms for us to allow us to continue to grow. Yeah. Yeah, we just, we just had on the show um, Our Lady Seat of Wisdom up in Canada mm -hmm. in Barry's Bay. And they were using some facilities renting from the local parish uh, there for their school. So. Mm -hmm. But um, you also, you've taught 
at the Naval Academy, right? That's um, right. Leadership. And because I should say, like, you were still fully employed, like, the first two years of the mm -hmm. school. So, and your your wife's employed, right? Yes. <laughs> so how did, let me, let's start there. How did that, how did y'all balance that? That's got to be tough. Yeah, it was hard. And that's what, that's what made the decision to start the school very difficult is, mm -hmm. I don't have time. You don't have time <laughs> to my wife. How are we going to make this happen? Yeah. And um, so the first year I really wasn't at the school much. I was there to drop my kids off. I was there yeah. to pick them up and just to check in with everybody and just worked in off hours um, to help build it up. Um, but then in the middle of the first year, COVID hit and then everyone went home. And so it was, which was, uh, you know, a mixed blessing. But the good part of that for us was that I was able to be at the school when the school was in session. Uh, and to dial into my meetings at the Naval Academy you know, virtually and to continue mm -hmm. to run the school and support the school, but also continue to do my work at the Navy. So, so it worked out you know, beautifully and then I retired and, and then I could just devote you know, my time mm -hmm. to the school. And even to today, I have an office there, a corner that I, I show up to the school and then I go, I do my, my real work. Uh, yeah. and then I'm, but I'm there to support anything that needs to happen and provide yeah. any direction that needs to occur. Yeah. But now you're fully retired from... The Navy, right? Fully retired yeah, from the yeah, Navy. Yeah. That's right. And then you have some, I guess, good people that have really stepped up, like admin people to help with the school. Yes, yeah. uh, just phenomenal people. Mm -hmm. That's that's the one thing I would say. Um, maybe an unexpected benefit of just coming out and say we are a 100% unapologetically Catholic school, mm -hmm. uh, and that attracts just amazing people. Uh, and mm -hmm. so they've come out of the woodworks and and just incredibly talented uh, and devoted people just with a great missionary spirit and a heart for evangelization and a love for children and just a, a desire to give everything that they had and then some. And so this every year we've collected more and more of these people God has provided them for us. Mm -hmm. And so the school's built up to the point where uh, honestly, I, you know, I wouldn't have to show up uh, anymore and the school would still continue on mm. and be successful. So it's God has provided. Well, that's a good segue to leadership. Yeah. <laughs> that is a very uh, popular term today. And, uh, and you actually taught it at the Naval Academy. Military is, it operates, right? Mm -hmm. It's dependent on leadership. But I'm reminded too, it's like, yeah, if you have a, a mission and it's clear and People will give, right? Mm -hmm. We'll support, we'll sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And um, so tell us about leadership. What, what skills and things, how do you face these, the issue of the school? Yeah, for sure. So leadership has helped me uh, in you know, understanding the importance of articulating a vision. Uh, this is what we're trying to do. This is this big, hairy, audacious goal that we seek to achieve. And for us, it's making saints and scholars and uh, becoming this amazing Catholic school uh, that teaches um, Catholic liberal education. Uh, that's you know, it's going to help our children get to heaven. And that inspires, that, that in turn inspires people who want to give um, as much as they can to the school, you know, and their time, talent, and treasure. And then when people come and they want to help out, then it's identifying what are those things that you love doing that just get you out of bed and get you excited uh, and then putting them in a role to be successful and just getting out of the way and just saying how can i help you how can i support you uh in doing this thing that you love doing uh, and that's really just been the that's been the key to the success of the school is just getting out of the way of really good people yeah and i'm thinking like in terms of like administrative work i guess I'm not that type of person, so, <laughs> but they do maybe have people that really 
enjoy that work. Yeah. We do, and yeah. it's uh, we have well, one volunteer, Miss um, Joanne, and she would kill me for mentioning her on mm -hmm. here, but she uh, just comes. She's retired, um, and she comes in every day, and she does all of the admin work. She she does ensures all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed for yeah. the school. She spends 40 or 50 hours a week there just because she loves the mission and she right. loves doing admin work. And, and it could go on. We've got, uh, you know, Miss Claire was our administrator for the first you know, few years of the school. Uh, jo uh, Jacqueline uh, now and our new uh, headmaster, um, Patrick Sullivan, they've all been fantastic. And they just roll up their sleeves and bring their loves and talents into the school. Uh, and uh, they just build the structures that allow our tutors to be successful in the classroom. And is it Joanne you met first? Mm -hmm. So yeah. like she had a career in the private secular field, right? Yeah, she was in forestry. Yeah, U.S. forestry service. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, you know, retired and, and yeah. she came in and, and found out what we we're doing and she's there almost every day. Huh. Yeah, well, we see that more at the network now too. People you know coming in from private industry and they want to work for a nonprofit. you know they don't want the pace or whatever for profit and things so but that, that's been a nice thing to see with the network bringing in like a lot of developed skills mm -hmm. and talents so yeah and do you have an academic background uh, i have masters in uh, philosophy and theology from holy about Holy Apostles College and Seminary, and then the time at the Naval Academy. But aside from that, no. Okay. And uh, like to articulate the vision, how was that done to the faculty? How do you, is that conferences or emails or yeah. text messages? <laughs> what do you Initially, it was really rough just because I was so unfamiliar with what we were trying to do. Uh -huh. I just kind of knew clumsily what I wanted. Um, and so I, I think back at uh, our first open house nights and, you know, we had very little to show people and, you know, all we could just talk about was this classical, you know, Catholic liberal education model that we wanted to, to do. And, uh, and thankfully it was enough for some people to, to jump on board. And then, mm. and then that, you know, as we learned more about it, uh, we were able to articulate it better and better. Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of the day, you know, we, um, we simplify it drastically. Uh, and in the morning at the beginning of school, um, before all the students arrived, all the teachers and faculty and staff, we all come together and we have a, uh, a cheer and we say, what's our mission? Making saints. What's mm -hmm. our mission? Making saints. Mm -hmm. What's our mission? Making saints. And then we say DNA on three, one, two, three, DNA. And then we've all cheered. We're excited. And we all know very, with complete clarity what it is that we're here for and what we're doing. Oh. And... I know the the website. I was looking at the website, and it was very clear. And you know, and it, it was. I, I thought about the because my mom and my dad both worked as civilians for uh, the government, uh, civil servants, and they had to do a lot of briefings and stuff and everything. And uh, I kind of felt that kind of military feel <laughs> or briefing. You did a lot of briefings in the military yes. and stuff. Yes, more like so. count. Yeah, because it was, I, th I thought it was, uh, sometimes, you know, it feels kind of soft, inflated, you know, but yours had a, I mean, it, it gave a vision of something to hope for, but at the same time, it was very uh, solid or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, they train you that way in the military, and so you need to get the maximum amount of information in the shortest amount of time across right. the radio or to whomever, whomever you're speaking. And so 
that's my preferred way of communicating. Just give you the substance and give it to you very quickly yeah. uh, with clarity. So. Right. So you said you have a master's from Paul the Apostles yes. in theology and philosophy. I've been, oh, both. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a big help. Yeah. Yeah. Academic. So. And then your own conversion story, you told a, a big chunk of it on the show, and it was beautiful that, um, you know, it kind of interests me, I don't know if you want to go into this, but you mentioned your, your mother struggled with alcoholism and stuff, and then sobered up, but did she like sober up and really find a real relationship to God in doing that? But yet you grew up atheist? She, she did. Um find God in, she was in the 12-step program, and through that, I, I remember her, you know, for a year, she was in rehab, and my brother and I went to live with my uncle, and I remember her coming back and praying with us and talking about God, mm. um, but it was so sporadic, you know, she, we wouldn't see her that often, and so, um, so certainly I was aware of God, but did God matter to me in my life? Mm -hmm. No, I, I was not in the practice of of prayer or of attending church or reading the scriptures. And so it's kind of any time when you, you don't spend time with somebody, uh, there's very little relationship there. And so I had no relationship with God by the right. time uh, high school rolled around. And, um, and that's when she had this um, recurring desire to bring God into my life as kind of the finishing touches for, for raising me. She wanted, I, I need to give this to you before you go. But by that time, I wasn't interested uh, in yeah. God. I was outright rejecting him. Yeah, so she came, she she did raise you right, from a young yes. boy, though. She yeah. was just away that one year. Yes, exactly. And your stepfather wasn't religious man or? No, I mean, I think he um, believed in God, but he's a quiet man and he doesn't really talk about, um, you know, his faith or his beliefs. And um, so it just really wasn't any part of conversation with him or our yeah. experience with him. Oh, wow. But he was good man. Very good said, man, yeah. yeah. Outstanding. Yeah, it felt like, well, you could see these themes, how it comes back to play in the school. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, like, if he raised a child younger, right, you got him for life kind of thing, yeah. you got in the faith. You're right. But just having a stable home life with the stepfather, um, you know, formed your character and ability. I mean, you went to the Naval Academy, right, for schooling? Or no, I, actually the first time I stepped foot on was to go teach. I went to Colby oh. College up in Waterville, Maine. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, and what did you study there? Biology. I was uh, pre-medicine. Okay. And then what drew you to the Air Force? So uh, one summer I was doing... I'm sorry, uh, the Navy. The Navy, yeah, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> um, I was doing research up there in organic chemistry, and I met a gentleman uh, who was a Naval Academy graduate, uh, who was a, a Navy SEAL, uh, who oh, finished yeah. and then become a, became an eye surgeon. And then in our conversations, he suggested that um, uh, I pay for medical school by you know, going through a Navy program and having oh, the Navy okay. pay for it. And so um, so when I, I took the MCATs and then stepped into the recruiting office in downtown Waterville, Maine, and uh, sat down on the couch and said, hey, I'd like to see how you can pay for medical school. I can become a doctor in the Navy. And just saw this gorgeous picture of an F-18 on the wall. And I said, oh, by the way, is there any chance I could do that? Uh, and they said, well, here's this test. Take it and we'll, we'll see how you do on it. And I did well. And I said, you can do anything you want. And I said, I'd really like to do that more than i like to go to medical school. And they said, I think we can make that happen for you. So. And they did. They did. They didn't, they didn't mislead you. Nope. You got the 2020 vision? And Actually, I didn't. I had a 2040 vision, uh -huh. 
and I uh, failed two vision tests. I failed one on the way in and they retested me and I, and I got it. And then uh, at OCS, I failed Officer Candidate School. I failed the first in the first test mm. they brought me in early the next morning and i was so nervous because this is the only thing i wanted to do in the navy yeah. uh, and bless his heart this this uh doctor in there uh he could see i was fumbling through my eye my eye <laughs> exam and uh he said i'll be right back and he walked out of the room and i said this is my chance so i <laughs> leaned in really close and i memorized the letters and he came back in and i shot him out. he's like you're good to go we're gonna get out of here and so so i was able to get into the navy and, uh, and then, did he do that on purpose? I think he did. Yeah. I think he did. Because yeah. <laughs> I was able to get eye surgery once I got in, and oh. I was fine. And I could wear glasses until I got eye surgery, and it didn't bother me at all. So, you had the radial keratotomy thing, or yeah, I had yeah. Um, um, not PRK, yeah. but the other LASIK. I had LASIK. Oh wow! Yeah. And so you can't you can't wear contacts or something, right? You can't. Well, I mean, I think they just use it as a way to winnow down candidates oh, for. Oh, right. There are some things that you can't correct for, but yeah. and you certainly need to use your eyes when you're up in the air. Um, but uh, there was nothing that I glasses basically brought me up to up to speed, and it was it was close enough. So, and that that was your dream. That was fulfilling, right? You loved it, every minute of it, and I did. I mean, it's yeah. like anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, you watch the movie Top Gun or. And you think, ah, oh, it's all glorious all the time. Yeah. Um, and that's one piece of the job. Right. Uh, yeah. And uh, that part's a lot of fun. But there are, like anything else, there are, there are things that are less fun about the job. Deployments, are they're hard when you're away from your family for extended periods yeah. of time. Or very long work days or just, just gone a lot. Um, mm -hmm. um, a lot more paperwork and studying and briefing and debriefing than, than the movie shows and whatnot. Um, but... But overall, the people were fantastic. Um, the opportunities to just do things, not be working in a cubicle somewhere, to be out flying uh, missions in Afghanistan or Iraq or something, doing something that felt meaningful, that you were making a difference in the lives of people, um, being a part of history, all of those things really made it a very memorable and uh, fulfilling experience for me. I would think, too, I mean, just the, the fear of like, if you ever had to eject over a place like Afghanistan, that must be terrifying yeah. <laughs> to get up. It is, yeah. it is, and people ha had to do it. Um, and so, yes, you're always worried. And thankfully in Afghanistan, um, there wasn't a huge threat. Mm -hmm. Our biggest threat was running into a drone uh, or uh, when you're refueling, having the tanker you know, smash your windshield where you'd have to maybe eject. Mm -hmm. um, but um, some of the scariest, we had one night in Afghanistan where you know, we were monitoring the movements of some Taliban. They were um, sneaking around to Fort Operating Base and some of our soldiers. And they asked us to come down and do what's called a show of force, uh, where you fly really low to the ground and really fast, uh, as fast yeah. as you can. And there were two of us, and it's not the first guy that they see, but it's the second guy that they see. And I was the second guy, uh -huh. uh, and it was pitch black, and we were in mountainous terrain, and I did not want to be down at 100 feet um, right. um, and trying to scare these guys. But that, we had to do that and just pray that these guys did not have a shoulder-fired missile uh, queued mm -hmm. up and, and ready to, to, to take us out. But uh, thankfully, uh, we we did that without without issue but that was that was a kind of a hair-raising event and like the f-18 i don't know if this is classified but just roughly how fast is that just miles per hour grounds yeah i mean um there's i think the book max speed is something close to uh, mach 2. i flew both versions the f-18 the yeah. hornet and the super hornet and yeah. um, the hornet's a little bit faster 
Wow. Um, the Super Hornet's just a little bit uh, chunkier. It's a little, yeah. It doesn't go through the air quite as well, but you get more gas in it and you can carry more weaponry. Wow. Um, but, you know, if you're flying around, you know, anywhere, you're, you know, if you're just trans transiting, it's 250 to 350 knots. Um, you can go faster than that, um, yeah. but, uh, you know, if you need to. And then... Where does, is it the F-23, is that the Raptor? F-22. F-22. Mm-hmm. Where does that fit in, in the Pantheon? Of yeah, <laughs> so that's an Air Force aircraft, yeah. um, but they are air superiority. And so yeah. if you think of the F-22 as maybe their quarterback, uh, uh-huh. and the F-18, when we work with our Air Force uh, friends, uh, we are maybe more the... Um, the running back where we were smashing through the enemy lines and breaking all of their stuff and getting getting it getting our the f-22 is ensuring that we can get through so they are taking out all you know bad guy mm. um airplanes so that we've got a clear clear skies or they've cleaned up most of it and we can clean up the rest and then fight our way in drop bombs on enemy you know mm. targets and then yeah. fight our way back out and i this is pretty far afield, I guess, if we're talking, but like the Afghan culture, what is that like? I mean, it, it seemed like a, they are a tough, determined, persevering people. What, how would you describe their culture? Yeah, um, I, I would describe it as um, primitive, but not, not in a bad way. I don't mean to say that um, we're superior or anything. I just mean to say that when we're flying, when you're flying over Afghanistan, people are living in mud compounds uh, mm-hmm. and they're living in valleys with their families and their tribes and that's yeah. what matters to them like they don't care about what's going on internationally they don't care about geopolitics they care right. about their family and and that right. is a, that's a, that's a strength of theirs uh, it's maddening for us going into afghanistan because you know we say we, we want you to be our allies but really they're allied to their their bloodlines their, right. their family and their right. friends their tribe uh, and they'll swap, uh, they'll, you know, they'll turn their backs on us in a heartbeat because we're foreigners and we don't, yeah. you know, we're not part of, you know, their history. And so they've been able to outlast the Russians and us and other other foreigners mm-hmm. who come in time after time again, because it's just, and the terrain is very difficult as well. But uh, they've just got those ingrained, you know, tribe tribal allegiances that make it very hard to, to break in and to divide and conquer. Right. And... That brings us back maybe to family at the school and, and maybe your own family again. Do you think uh, your mom praying for you was a huge factor for your own? I forgot, she was Catholic, right? Or She was raised Methodist and uh, then became into the Catholic Church uh, after I came into the church. Oh, after you did? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I have no doubt that my mom prayed for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, um, next to Christ and Mary, uh, there's no one who is more selfless and and loving than she is and self-sacrificial. She just really lives that every day mm-hmm. uh, on a daily basis. And I know um, that she wants the best for me. Uh, and yeah. uh, over the decades that we've been together, really, we almost have a, she's only 16 years older than I am, 15. She was mm-hmm. 15 when she got pregnant for me. So she's not that much older than I am. Right. Uh, so we've almost come through life together, mm-hmm. um, me kind of hot on her heels. And uh, I know that she loves me more than anything else. and so. Uh, so I have no doubt that her prayers have contributed. Yeah. Does she live near you today? Or? She lives in Florida, uh, where Florida. my stepdad. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, to, on your own story, um, you mentioned your neighbor that was reading Aquinas and Aristotle. <laughs> yeah. 
which is pretty unusual. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but one thing that struck me as so real is that you shared in the show how you you had maybe more you're looking as an unexpected source. Would you say yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> God is a God of surprises. Yes, yes. Talk about that element of it. You guys are sitting on the back porch. Yeah. And absolutely. he brings up God. Uh, so I was, uh, that was the same summer where I met the Navy SEAL. Uh, and I came back from, from Colby and I was doing organic chemistry research. And uh, we'd had a party. I think it was uh, either a 4th of July party or something else. And, and my stepdad uh, is sitting on the porch with the, our neighbor, Paul. Mm -hmm. Uh, and my stepdad is a man of very few words, unless he's got a beer in his hand and a friend to speak to. Uh, and I saw that opportunity. He said, I want to hear what's on my dad's mind. Mm. Uh, and so I went out and joined them on the porch and just sat there just to be a fly on the wall. Uh, and uh, before long, the conversation turned to me and Paul said, hey, Ali, you know, what are you up to? What are you doing? I said, I'm doing this organic chemistry research. And he said, well, tell me about it. You know, what is it? And I said, well, we're doing... Uh, work with these carbines. And he said, well, what is a carbine? Uh, I said, yeah. well, you know, it's this combination of carbon atoms. Uh, and I said, well, how does that work? And I, and I said, I don't know. I really have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, and he started asking me a couple other questions. And I just, you know, I, you know, I had no clue. I couldn't answer his questions. I didn't know. I, I was so adept at playing the game of memorize just the surface level and just regurgitate. I never really understood um, things that I was learning in school. And uh, he exposed that very quickly. Um, and he said, I could have come here to throw rocks at you, but I came here to throw you a rope. He's, and then he said, do you believe in God? Whoa. Oh, he, he was there for you in a sense? That's what he I? said. Yeah. Wow. What, what, what did he do for a living? So he was, um, he operated a, a historical renovation company. So uh, colleges, uh, state capitals, you know, mm. uh, you know, buildings that are um, beautiful and uh, designed to last for a long time, they, you know, frequently need or periodically need renovation. And so that's his specialty is to take care of those types of buildings, churches, uh, colleges. But do you think your mom put him up to witnessing, do you? Or? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think she was aware of it, nor yeah. my stepdad. And it's just yeah. his on his heart. And it was just, I think, God had put it put it on his heart to to uh, to be there and to ask that question. I just really think it was God's providence. And uh, from you know, if you were to ask him, he'd say that you know God always told me that you know the time I invested in the lead was worth it. There was a a purpose for it. Uh, mm. And and then over the next few years after that conversation, we had multiple other conversations. I went into the hardest lowest time of my life, you know, and I was trying to figure out who I was and what life was about. I had to reevaluate everything. And, uh, and he was there to say, hey, stand up straight. You know, you're worth something. You are somebody. Uh -huh. You're going to do something great. Uh -huh. uh, and that continuous encouragement. And then also battles. We battled, you know, we, in the show, we talked about apologetics. Right. And I was, I was, you know, throwing everything I had against the Catholic Church at him because I did not want to become Catholic. And he was uh, Catholic. He was Catholic. Uh, yeah. And he used apologetics and history, philosophy, and he just calmly deflected all these things and brought truth to me. And it was the truth that won me over. Uh, and we've maintained a strong relationship since then. And in fact, over the last seven years, we collaborated on a book together. Uh, and we wrote oh. a book uh, about J.R. Tolkien and the inter interpretation of his works as mythology. 
Oh. called Mountain Doom, uh, The Prophecy of Tolkien Revealed. And in that, we bring uh, Thomas Aquinas and scholasticism as the appropriate filter through mm-hmm. which one can properly interpret Tolkien, uh, mm-hmm. which is something that's clear in his writings if, you're, if you know what to look for. You know, I, I feel, and I barely read it, I listened to it, I think, on tape more than anything, but, but to me it seems Augustinian. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that whole, I cannot, it's so, such a beautiful plot that to me that, um, that Frodo fails to throw the ring in. Mm-hmm. That sounds Augustinian. Yeah. Like, it's not like he became so virtuous on this journey and he just continued the, the growth of virtue and acting virtuously and threw the ring. Right. No, he had to have his finger bitten off <laughs> yeah. to get the ring in the... <laughs> I think there's just life. It's so messy and uh-huh. no one just, you know, just when you think that you've, you've got it, then there's another temptation or another failure, you know, and every day is a battle, you know, every day is a battle. And, and that's kind of what we talk about with regard to Middle Earth. And Middle Earth is inside each and every one of us. And wow. orcs are sin and the, the hobbits are virtues. And, you know, every day we're, we're working on our virtues and trying to overcome sins, but sometimes the orcs win, you know, and sometimes yeah. the hobbits and uh, men win. And, um, but there's and a greater power guiding it all. There right? is, there is. It's God's providence, God's grace uh, who, who comes in and, and saves the day for us. Um, it's so beautiful. It is, yeah. And um, so it was a dark period in your life and he was working and so you, you became Catholic. Were you in the Navy at that point then? Okay. Yeah, so I, uh, so once I graduated from high school, um, I joined the Navy through Officer Candidate School. That was about three months over the summer of um, 2002 into the fall of 2002. And then once I graduated uh, from Officer Candidate School in October, um, Paul reconnected with me in, I think it was January of 2003. And during that time, that's when the Columbia disaster occurred. And he knew that I wanted to be a, an astronaut. And mm-hmm. so that was my plan. And uh, so he called just to check and see how I was doing. Uh, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm fine. Thanks for checking in. And he said, hey, by the way, how is your search for God? Where are you at right now with mm-hmm. regard to, you know, with God? And I said, well, I've decided I'm going to be a Christian, um, but I'm going to, my plan is to go to every church in town and see which one I like the best. And that's what I'm going to be. And he said, uh. whoa, he said, stop, <laughs> stop right there. He said, uh, does the truth comport itself to us or us to the truth? You know, what uh. needs to be a priority for us? And for me, I did not want to agree with him, but I couldn't, I, I couldn't disagree that, that we, truth is foundational, right? Is that rock uh. that we have to comport ourselves to? And I said, well, I guess we have to do that. Um, and uh, he said, well, then you have a duty to find out what the truth is. And I said, all right, but it's not in the Catholic Church. You know, I'm not becoming Catholic. He said, well, bring and it Where on. did that come from? Why, why was that in you? That's a great question. Yeah. I, I, don't, um, I don't exactly know. I mean, a lot of my friends growing up were Catholic. Um, I just had this sense that if I was going to be anything, I would be what my family was. And my family was Methodist. Um, and um, just had a sense that you know, it was us versus them and, and nothing I can articulate in consciously. Um, my, my family were certainly not anti-Catholic. Um, and when you were at school in Maine, was that pretty liberal school you're at? Very much so. Yeah. yeah, very much so. Did that influence you a lot or? I do remember being in a class, a biology class, and um, my teacher, my professor was very um, atheistic and she was very strong about uh, expressing her views there in the classroom. 
And I remember that being very off-putting for me, um, even though I, I shared her drink, <laughs> agreed with her. Yeah, um, I just felt like there's something, there's an emotional, there's an emotion behind this yeah. that that makes me wonder if what you're saying is actually true. Yeah. Um, and it made me uh, more sympathetic to the, to the Christian message um, than if she had just stated it more matter, matter of factly, uh, where, you know, I've got the truth and this is the truth, you know, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I think, and then honestly, just, you know, not having God in your life is a life of loneliness and misery. And that was probably the biggest thing that propelled me is that I've tried everything uh, that the yeah. world says to try that will bring you happiness. And none of those have done that beyond right. the fleeting moments of happiness but true joy was inescapable for me until i came to, to christ in the catholic church um so and was like mary the eucharist were those big hurdles for you or? the eucharist i don't think was um because i was able to read about the eucharistic miracles and mm -hmm. um but mary was mary was i had no experience of mary growing up and so i felt I've got a mom. Like, why do I need Mary as my mom? She's never been a part of my life. And, and, you know, I remember um, I had come into the church and uh, visiting a, uh, a woman's house out in California. And she had must be 20 statues of Mary uh, mm. in, uh, in a display in her house. <laughs> and she's just wondering what is going on here. This seems excessive. Uh, and uh, so, my, but my relationship with Mary has grown and grown and grown every year and i've been catholic for 17 years now mm -hmm. um, and past my initial you know um uh, putting her at holding her at arm's length um eventually you know asking for her intercession and building a relationship with her through the rosary um and praying for her intercession have just they've really opened my heart to the beauty of her motherhood her spiritual motherhood uh, and wanting her to be in my life and the life of my children in the school. And what about being married and seeing like your wife become a mother? You have three kids. That's right. And I, you know, that motherhood right changes a woman, mm -hmm. and the the maturation there and the beauty of, of being a mother, the the power of it. You know, mm -hmm. was that an impact on you? Or? I think um, probably not from the perspective of my wife. My wife was amazing, uh, mm -hmm. and it seemed like she was. It was a natural transition for her from being a wife uh, into being a mother, and it was almost instinctive for her. Um, for me, it was a big change going from you know bachelorhood to husband to now father. And there, I, just... I would think an F eighteen bachelor. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <exactly. laughs> You're on top of the world. There. Yeah, it's, there's a big transition there. And I mean, I there were times where she had to leave for trips on you know uh, for work, and uh, I would be me with you know, our daughters and her coming back and me just being in tears and just, and, but it, it was over the course of those experiences where I was able to really learn what it means to be a father mm -hmm. and to care for someone else, to be less self-focused and less self-centered, um, and to, to truly love another person, um, you know, who could, who, you know, maybe frustrating, they may be crying, maybe they're whiny, um, but to love them through it all uh, and mm -hmm. in, in many ways that you know reflected more mary's patience love my, you know the blessed virgin mary's patience love for me patient mm -hmm. love for me where 
I may hold her at arm's length. I may not seek recourse to her, um, but she offers her love regardless um, and, uh, and patiently waits till I'm ready to, to receive it. So. Right, right. And were there any characters in Tolkien that, I know there's some in there represent Our Lady. Was that, was that made an impression on you? Or? Oh yeah, well Galadriel is one right out of the gate. Uh, and I think they actually do a pretty good job of displaying, even in the movies, mm -hmm. uh, which in our book we say, hey, ignore what you saw in the movie because they begin <laughs> to kind of marred it. Um, but uh, Galadriel uh, is one. And um, uh, there's another one, uh, Elbereth uh, Gothoniel. She's she's one of the uh, the Arda, um, and um, and she's got a, multi, a number of names. But 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 Mary is very important to um, to Tolkien uh, and mm -hmm. in in his his fidelity and in, in, in his life. And so he he brought her into his mythology over and over again. Uh, and so there are marks of Mary kind of throughout a number of characters for him. Yeah. What does Tom Bombadil mean? What the heck yeah. is that about? That's a great question. <laughs> Tom Bombadil is like puzzling to everybody. Yeah. Um, but we identify Tom Bombadil uh, and Goldberry as the will uh, and the intellect. Uh, oh. And so uh, for the two of them, and the, the thing that's very most interesting, and they are the continuation of the two trees in the Silmarillion, hmm. um, Telperion and, and Lorelin. And, and the, you know, the common understanding is that um, you know, this is the Silmarillion is the creation story, just another creation story. Mm -hmm. uh, but the very, the clue that makes that no, not true is that there's the flame imperishable, which, which comes out, which emanates uh, from the heart of, of Arda. Mm -hmm. um, and the world does not have a flame that comes out and enlivens it, but the human soul does. The flame imperishable is the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. uh, and the human soul has the, the the holy spirit and so so yeah. for us arda is not uh, the world it's not this world it cannot be it's in fact a human soul mm -hmm. and you you made me think when you had that professor that was like fiercely uh, atheistic and was off-putting and stuff i'm just curious too because you i was just thinking about that with the lord of the rings you know maybe some of the speeches you're trying to rouse mm -hmm. middle earth is that right to drive out the mm -hmm. and what is the role of emotions and leadership and, and just like your military training that, you know, does it cloud your judgment or what do they tell you about that? Yeah, it can cloud your judgment, yeah. but they try to impress upon you that you really, really need to be as clear headed as you possibly can. I mm -hmm. mean, it's hard because we're emotional beings, right. um, but at the same time, you don't want emotion to, you don't want it to creep into your voice. You don't want it to, uh, to prevent you from executing your mission, right? Yeah, you need to, yeah. um, you need to um, do the things that are required to achieve mission success. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, what does that what does that mean? It means communicating the most information in the shortest amount of time, very yeah. clearly to people, because lives are on the line. You know, time uh, is precious, uh, and you need to get that information across. And you can't. There's no time for emotion. And I'll tell mm -hmm. you a story about this. So. On the, I was the tour in flying in Afghanistan. I was coming home one night. It was midnight. I was exhausted, and um, and I had to land on the aircraft carrier at midnight. And so um, and they don't light it up with big lights. Oh or... no, they, no, they want it as dark as possible um, because the light will will um, prevent you actually from seeing it. Just it's too much, you know, when you've just been looking in the dark. 
oh, for really? oh, in the wow. last six hours. Yeah. Um, anything that's yeah. too bright is yeah. going to, to, to hurt your eyes. So, and also for other reasons, you know, you don't want people to see you out yeah. there as well. But um, so as I'm coming in to, you know, I'm arcing around to, to, to try to you know, get down to altitude, um, I got distracted. The, um, the carrier was trying to find the right winds and it was just continuously moving, shifting its, its heading. Uh, and I, and I need to line up my heading to, to land on in the right, in the right way. Um, and so I'm down in my system, continuing to update my, my coordinates, update, 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 you know, and, uh, and then enough was my guardian angel who was, someone said, look up. Uh, and I look up and I had this face full of water. I had blown completely through my altitude. And if I didn't act in that moment, I was going to be a oil slick in the, in the mm. ocean. Uh, and so I pulled up with a stick for everything that I had. Uh, and you know, bottomed out at maybe a couple hundred feet if I'm lucky. Mm. Um, got back up on altitude, and all I wanted to do was freak out at that moment. I almost killed myself due to my own inattentiveness. Yeah. Yeah. But I had to now land on an aircraft carrier in the middle of the night uh, and exhausted <laughs> and freaking out. Uh, yeah. And so there's no time for the emotion. So I yeah. need to compartmentalize, push the emotion to the side. I can't do that right now. All I can do is the next right thing to get myself onto the the deck of the carrier and the next mm -hmm. right thing the next right thing and then once all i'm safe the jet the jet is safe on deck then i can have my moment where i'm just emotionally <laughs> freaking out um but you can't do it then and so so the military does a great job of helping you to understand that you need to compartmentalize and you have to move this stuff until you can deal with it at a later time but right now you just have to handle it's one task uh -huh. one foot in front of another and when are emotions good maybe to help you push through something or what do they, they present positive light to it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I will, I will, I'll, I'll, you'd mentioned it earlier in the term of leadership and yeah. the value of leadership. And so one of, one of the things we teach at the Naval Academy is leadership is about relationships. It's about relationships between mm -hmm. leaders and followers. And it's a relationship based upon trust uh, that uh, I trust that you have my best interests at heart. I trust that you are trying to do the best that you can. Um, that you're competent, that you know mm -hmm. what you're doing. Um, and then that trust, there's, there are emotions tied in with that, right? Either a lack of trust, um, there's fear uh, right. with there, uh, or uh, uh, distrust, um, and, uh, or there are feelings of, uh, of love could even be there as well, or deep respect. Um, and so with regard to emotions, having a strong bond with the people who are following you um, bonds of affinity, of, of love, uh, mm -hmm. of affection, um, are very helpful in getting the things done that need to be done. Mm -hmm. right? And so we want to encourage the strongest possible quality of relationships. And I think leaders who understand that are very successful or more so than leaders who don't, who think that it's just about, you know, I need to get this thing done and you're the closest person to it. Yeah. And you're just, you're not a human being. You're just a cog right. in the wheel to get things done. And so, um, so that's one of the key elements of leadership is that, and then the, the emotions that come along with that relationship. And what about like just irreconcilable differences? Like they want this and this is the mission or whatever, you know, and you guys just can't come to, what do they tell you about finding an agreement, a common ground with that? Is this with your leaders or with people uh, who are following you? Yeah, between leaders and the followers. Uh, well, that's the beautiful thing about the military is you've got ranks. <laughs> the person who's the higher rank wins every time. Uh, and so there'd be and times- marriage just blows us all apart. Exactly. Right? Well, no, there's rank in marriage too. Um, but uh, we are, the, the joke in the military is your wife is, is 
commander in charge of the household. <laughs> and so, uh, you do what you need to do. But uh, I have a beautiful wife, and she's amazing at uh, allowing me to be the head of the household. But she is, uh, you know, she's a wonderful woman, and she's uh-huh. she contributes greatly. Um, I forget where I was saying where I was going with that. But uh, but anyway, it's the you know the well, leaders in those... charge. Yeah. Okay. Uh, And the followers need to follow. And uh, unless there's something that's being uh, dictated or ordered that is illegal uh, uh, or immoral, in which case you have then a duty to push back on that. Um, But if it's I just disagree with you, that's not that's not enough to to not do what you're supposed to do. Right. You know, one thing that came across to me in the show, uh, you mentioned, I think it was like 80 percent of tutors and people at the school or parents mm-hmm. right yes and those might be volunteers and stuff mm-hmm. and uh but it you know you could see it was almost like it seems like this continuation of like you know the family is the primary educator mm. and then this school is very much is like a family that it was coming out of your heart as a father and these other people as parents that uh that they want to continue this in an academic setting is that is that how you describe it? Or? Yes. You know, when we talk about even our core values for the school, it begins with the family. And so we are partnering with parents. They are um, giving us permission to, to help parent their children, help form them. Um, and it comes back to the families as well at the, at the very end. You know, it goes through God uh, as, we, as we help form them uh, in relationship, into relationship with God um, through classical liberal arts or Catholic liberal education. But the whole goal of that is to return them to their family, a, a stronger, better formed human being so they can achieve their ends and to, to be a good uh, contributor to their family um, and, um, and to, to strengthen and to have strong families of their own, to strengthen their community uh, against you know, attacks from without, uh, from uh, society, from culture, things that may be poisonous or antithetical to, to, to Christ and to the church. Right. But uh, it sounds like the school has a great family spirit among the teach tutors and things. It is, it, and it's. Um, we do see ourselves as a family. You know, when we address our families, it's DMA family, right? And we're mm-hmm. a family of families, uh, and you can see that affection uh, among the the tutors, faculty, and staff, among the families themselves. Um, we're all we all want the same thing, and that's heaven for our kids, uh, and so that brings us all together. And you know, it's so striking too that you all encourage, like maybe through volunteering or whatever, the parents to be present. Mm-hmm. And that seems so different from the experience that's going on in the world that, you know, all the problems with uh, young people are having and acting out on different whatever. And uh, it just seems so hopeless in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> but well, interesting here, they have a fraternist group here that, you know, I think it builds itself as. A ministry groups to help you know young teenage boys and stuff but at some point they have a big chapter at one time i don't know if it's those but the biggest chapter in the country but one of them said well i'm not sure if it's about the boys or really about the fathers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and connecting fathers to their children right their yeah. sons and uh, do you see that as as powerful in your school happening and i think the um any way you can strengthen the family is going to you know, as the family goes, the society goes, yeah. our country goes. Right. And so anything that you can do to strengthen the bonds of marriage, the bonds of um, 
fatherhood and of motherhood. We have a mother's group, you know, at, at the school where mothers can get together and they can be formed. And we want to form our families more and more in, in the Catholic faith and in love of Christ. And, and that can only benefit the family life and strengthening it. Um, and I think in that way, um, we can fight back against you know, the hopelessness that's, that's pervading society, which is simply a result of the brokenness uh, in our families. And I think uh, so other schools are able to do that and any opportunity to, if it's the Fraternal Society or, or others, mm-hmm. ways that we can grow our families and strengthen them. Those are, those are the key to, to success. And what's neat in your story is that you, know, you very much are aware of brokenness that's out there. Right, you've yeah. walked through some of that yourself. And, uh, you know, the other thing I, that caught me in the interview Brother John did with you was, um, you know, those, those those questions that those ancient Greeks had, right? They yeah. just don't go away. Right? No, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> and even put, like, maybe as a child would still have them in their own childlike way. Mm-hmm. Like the maybe, I don't know, purpose of life, how to lead a good life, or, you know, I want to be heroic, I want to do the right thing, mm-hmm. what's the right thing kind yeah. of thing. Um, can you talk about that? What you've seen uh, in in lives of these these children that yeah. they respond to? Yeah, I think those two last points you made are actually they're connected mm-hmm. uh, with the brokenness and the breakdown of the family. Children don't know how they ought to behave. How what does adulthood look like? What does adolescence yeah. look like? There's no structure, and, and that's how I felt in many ways in my upbringing. Is what is what does right look like? And my stepdad and my mom filled a lot of that gap, but there was a huge swath there where I didn't have, um, you know, father figure to help me to, to navigate that. Um, and uh, so the mentors for me who came into my life later on were critical for finding that solid footing uh, to understand what does a life well lived look like? What is, what is it to be a man? Um, and, and so as we're teaching the children uh, in our school uh, setting, we're teaching them what is what it is to be a man or a woman. It's to be virtuous. It is to pursue virtue. It is to serve others ahead of yourself. It is to love Christ. It is to love your family members. Um, it is to ask great questions and to wonder and to and to love God's creation, um, but not more so than we love the Creator Himself. And were you? In, in the Methodist church growing up? I mean, your, your mom brought you to that church? and Yeah, so I was baptized in the Methodist church twice. Uh, and I was <laughs> once as a child, as very infant. And then again, because we weren't sure if I'd been baptized the first time <laughs> again as a teen. Uh-huh. And then I was confirmed in the Methodist church. And I've got uh-huh. fond memories of the church, uh, of the Methodist church. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so I, I attended um, predominantly in high school uh, a little bit when I was a kid and, and more in high school before. You know, I was I went away to high school for private school, the last two years of high school. But before then, uh, for a couple of years, I was. Oh, you went to school. a boarding school. I did. Oh, that was a good experience. Was it? It was a, an eye-opening experience. I went to Phillips Academy Andover, uh, yeah. which is um, you know world-renowned boarding school, and I was a poor kid from Vermont uh, mm-hmm. showing up, and there were kids, princes from India and Turkey in my uh, in wow. my dorm. You know, <laughs> kids were rolling up in limousines, the doors <laughs> opening out, kids are popping out. Uh, the heir to the Goodyear fortune was there. There was the, the younger brother of an NHL hockey player that was on my team. Um, and it was, you know, there were people from all over the world there. And it was, that was very eye-opening. Um, and the academics were very rigorous. 
there and I learned a lot. I mean, I had the first semester was very challenging. I just remember calling home and just a mess about, mm -hmm. I was working nonstop, like I, homework late into the night, all weekend long. Um, but I felt like it strengthened me and, and did as good a, a job of preparing me for college as I could have expected given my situation. It was not a classical or a Catholic liberal education, which I would see as far superior, but living away from home and undergoing that rigorous education, I think were good for me and not only in building me up, but also giving me the confidence to step out and say, all right, I made it through that place. I can take care of college. Okay. I made yeah. it through college. I can join the Navy and I can do this thing in the Navy. Yeah. And so, yeah. Well, I was wondering, like in the Methodist Church, you very much heard about the value of like serving others, helping others. So that was you really came out with like those values. Or I wouldn't say I got those from Methodist Church. Uh, for me, I was there was a cute girl in my uh, my uh, youth group, and I I was there for her. And uh, as far as all the other stuff that kind of washed over me, um, if I got any idea about service to others, it's from my parents um, yeah. who did that for me day in and day out. And, um, and I, you know, I can say that's a lesson I've just continued to learn as life has gone on and I'm nowhere near where I ought to be or I want, where I want to be, or even where, you know, my parents are. Um, but, um, but that they would be the ones I would point to. Yeah. You know, I know for me, when I was growing up too, it, it was one thing, uh, my dad used to read like some philosophy books to us. And, and one thing I got out of that, that there was a truth that there was objective truth. Yeah. Now, one of these philosophers was, was pretty far off, <laughs> maybe like their moral, their moral behaviors and stuff. But, it, uh, but I, I, I said, that is such an important piece to this. Mm. That if you can give like a young person, okay, there is such a thing as a heroic life. Mm. You know, I mean, today I think we've just decayed to this thing of, you know, there's, there's not even heroes. Their heroes are so mixed and everything mm. that... Um, which is, I guess there's truth in that, but it doesn't seem like they really, I mean, the ideal is, yeah, we have struggles, but we still achieve some heroicism, right? right. <laughs> and it seems like we fall short. I mean, I caught the very tail end, like the 1977 Superman movie, you mm -hmm. know? It was like, he was good, completely good, you know? Maybe the third movie he fell apart, but it was <laughs> like yeah, the first one. Uh, but anyway, is it that, it just seemed like, Especially, I don't know, I was thinking like young boys, especially, it's like if you can get them that, that, you know, nights or there's a hero's journey, you know, doesn't that kind of ignite them? <laughs> yeah, I think you're right about that. You're on to something that I think today, storytellers in Hollywood and yeah. in our books, they, they, they mix the good and bad. Uh, and a lot of our heroes in the movies and the stories also do bad things and yeah. the villains they always want to now show you know the good in the villains uh, and right. and so it's it provides almost a confusing sense of what should i be aiming at and there's right. there's good in that and to understand that we're complex beings and no one is one dimensional mm -hmm. um however uh, with that said i don't think it points the way toward how we ought to be do i want to be like you know, Iron Man and be this rich playboy, you know, self-centered guy, right. but who also, you know, when he feels like it, you yeah. know, saves, saves other people. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. Um, but the right thing to be is to be virtuous, to be yeah. someone who has committed their lives to truth and reason uh, and doing the good in, in, in at all possible and whenever possible. 
And so I think that clarity that you can provide with the example of the Knights, and we do that in Catholic liberal education as we show them, you know, the Knights, that's, you know, one year we have a medieval year and they are, they get to see Knights in armor and, mm -hmm. you know, study the chivalry and, uh, and they get to see that, ex that example and then right. they want to, uh, um, to, to become like that. And to me, it's fascinating in movies too, that, you know, they, Hollywood has to clothe and it goes, I guess, farther back than Hollywood, but just they have to clothe evil, evil with, you know, maybe the, the, the best actor, the most handsome actor or the wittiest, you know, he's got, usually the, the villain's got the best lines, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's some, what is the attraction of that? I, you know, that, I, I don't know, some people have described it as just like this license, mm -hmm. you know, that. It's just that draw of I can do what I want, mm -hmm. you know, just impose my will. And, um, but there's a lack of virtue there. Mm -hmm. and, and we love the underdog, right? The yeah. guy that's doing the right thing, but has roadblock after roadblock. He keeps persevering through it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, you know, it's the, the line between good and evil goes through the, the middle of the human heart. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I can even sense within myself, there are times when, you know, I want to be bad, like, or I want to, you know, relish in, yeah, you know, those yeah, things that, right, you know, right. like, for example, I, I love speed. I love going fast, you know, and I, I, I you know, sometimes my wife says I drive my car like I fly my, my jet airplane and she's right about that. And sometimes I just want to go fast, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, driving the speed limit, it just, it taxes my patience, you know, right. even though it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, and so there's just that, that part of us that is attracted to sin. And, and if sin wasn't attractive, nobody would do it, right? If there right. wasn't some, some, you know, very short, you know, temporary, um, you know, benefit, I hate to say even the word benefit mm -hmm. to it, but uh, some, something that, you know, a uh, reward for yeah. having accomplished it, then no one would do it. But that little reward or that little treat that you get for doing the, the bad thing, um, it's, it's very alluring. It's just, it's, uh, yeah. it's intoxicating. And at the end of the day, it's, it's like repetitive. It's like, yeah, I guess Satan can come at us in all these different ways, but it's kind of like the same thing. You know, there's a flatness to it. There's a lack of creativity you know just stealing our joy it's mm -hmm. like you wonder how sometimes i i pause and say how is this how is this even a competition right? <laughs> <laughs> and actually i heard one exorcist who's he's a big deal now on instagram and they were talking about you know in halloween can i dress up as a some kind of demon figure and and i was you know i was waiting for some whatever discussion but you know, I thought he gave a great response. He said, "He said, you know, demons are so horrible. He said, we can't even imagine really just um, how terrible, nasty it is. Why would you ever want to dress mm -hmm. up like this? And I thought, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, thought, I thought that's the best. Yeah. <laughs> that was the best answer. We lose sometimes what they're about and stuff. But, um, so, yeah, I think, I guess it's all, you know, to get a, a young person's, to train them in the good, to be, mm. to do the good. And that's the other thing too. It's like, you know, when you do virtuous things repetitively, we want to do them more. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, even the secular world's telling us that. Yes. You know, we wait for inspiration. Oh, then I'm going to be an expert, you know, yeah. and I'll start. Now you start doing the work and then the interest deepens, right? Yes. It's, it's adapting the, um, the taste for something. Um, it's, uh, you know, when you, when you're, uh, when I, when my kids were little, you know, we would, they're babies and we'd feed them, you know, oatmeal and we'd feed them, 
yogurt. Uh, and sometimes I'd mix the two together and they would eat the yogurt and the, the oatmeal mixed together. And they mm. had acquired a, a taste for the mix of the oatmeal yeah. and yogurt. Now, I'd never eaten yogurt and, and oatmeal together myself and yeah. I would find it gross, but they had acquired the taste for it. And they were formed uh, where that is something that they said, so I like that. Um, yeah. And you, you apply that to the good uh, and virtue. And virtue are, they're simply little good habits, right? And it's doing the right thing, the next right thing, the next right thing, the next right thing, and forming their wills so that that becomes more likely, that they are more likely than not to do the next right thing, because that's the momentum, that's the, the strength that they build up in making that right choice. Uh, and that feels, yeah. they have uh, that diminishes their desire to do the bad thing. Like for me, I've got decades of speeding that I have to I have to fight in order to to avoid going fast on the highway um, to to battle but if I had been driving the speed limit yeah. from from the get-go yeah. then that would be a, a very easy thing for me to overcome so right. it's, it's establishing those good right habits right at the out of the outset I'm trying to learn that myself you just leave five minutes early you can have a relaxing trip to your appointment mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're not trying to carve out seconds here and there you know <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly yeah, you know, I remember when I was young, my dad read us uh, like a kid's version of, uh, of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And I remember just being so taken by that, mm-hmm. like Achilles, he's invincible, and yeah. dipped in the river Styx, and just, you know, the battles. And that uh, Hector had Arete, or I'm not mm-hmm. sure you pronounce it, but just excellence, yes. right? He has this character mm-hmm. of excellence. And I just remember as a kid being just like completely taken by that, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, it's like, you know, those, those themes, and even later in life, um, I remember hearing that, reading that scene, like Agamemnon burning the ships, mm. right? You know, I, I related to that. It's like, as you get older and you want to maybe just mail it in, sit back, you lose that eye of the tiger. <laughs> you don't have a way home there. You know, either yeah. you win or you're yeah. going to be enslaved or whatever. And uh, there's so many elements to that great literature. It is, yeah. yeah. I actually just reread it, and um, it's just a manliness. Uh, mm-hmm. It is a manliness that for for young boys, that's all they want to do. They want to wrestle. They want yeah. to be knights. They want to like be police officers. Yeah. They want to be soldiers. They want to do manly things uh, and things that inspire and things that matter. Uh, and in that book, you know, in the in the Iliad, the story of the Iliad, it is. That's what it is. They are there to reclaim the the queen of Sparta, Helen, and to bring her back. They've been wronged, uh, you know, and they've got these. They've been there for ten years, and they're they're just trying to outweigh and then then conquer the Trojans. But the Trojans have their own heroes, right? And then you've got the heroes battling out one after another and one on one combat while everyone's watching, you know, with bated breath yeah. to see who's gonna who's gonna emerge. It's just it's something I'm getting you know tingly just thinking about. There's something about you know manliness that just just desires that or you finds want a cause, just, yeah right? that, some, to, part of mission there it is yeah. and uh for me personally the one that inspired me was star wars and uh and luke skywalker flying piloting the x-wing to to win you know to win the yeah. battle against all odds the underdog that you talked about earlier yeah. against the empire to save the galaxy that was what inspired me when i was a kid to want to fly planes but that dream had kind of just been buried and that came up in that moment where i was sitting in the recruiter's office staring at the f-18 i mean i had visions of x-wing fighters you know drifting back up in the back of my head said that's what I want to do. That's I want to be that hero that I wanted to be when I was a kid. You know, I want to save the universe. You know, yeah. through through yeah. you know being a pilot. Yeah, I think those are. Good. I mean, some people say, "Well, that's unrealistic. That's fairy tale land." But no, there is 
this heroic sacrifice is, you know, we have to make family life, yeah. raising kids, loving your spouse and all of that. And, you know, another thing like with Star Wars, somebody else pointed this out to me, but just that they're always sacrificing themselves. I mean, that to me, the movies at their best is when they come back and make sacrifice. You know, they come back and are constantly just, you know, even in, I'm not a fan of the reboots. I haven't even seen most of them, but you still see some of those elements. And it's like, oh man, that's the part like I kind of missed growing up. It's like, okay, there's this objective truth that we need to seek like personal level. But part of the two, the social nature of man. He's not just uh, an individual made in the image and likeness of God. We're made as Adam and Eve, right? We're made in a society, a couple, a communion of persons. Mm -hmm. And to live that part out of it too, that, that becomes a very rich story. Because mm -hmm. you wonder why, why do some movies make it and some movies don't? It's mm -hmm. like, I, mean, I think they hit upon some of those deep themes that even if it's done, because stereotypically, like the Dialogue, dialogue of Star Wars is pretty poor and everything. <laughs> but, but yeah, but they, that sacrificial element is deep, mm -hmm. right? Suffering yeah. for another is deep. There was a, uh, you know, when you're a dad, you watch a lot of cartoons with your kids mm -hmm. and cartoon movies. And there was, uh, a, it was um, um, a cartoon movie that came out probably 10, uh, five to 10 years ago about a, uh, a robot uh, and this robot, um, you get to know him over the course of the the, um, the movie, and then at the very end, he sacrifices himself to save the children. Uh, and right. I mean, I was I remember being in the movie theater, just like weeping at the end of this cartoon <laughs> robot, you know, just like sacrificing itself. And then, surprise, in the end, you know, they able to save his memory chip, you know, and all is good. But I think there's something in there that, um, and Tolkien talks about this with regard to mythology and fairy tales. Uh, and it was integral to, to uh, C.S. Lewis's conversion is that these myths, these fairy tales, they're not all make-believe. There's a kernel in there that reflects the true myth, the true fairy tale, and that is Christ in the gospel. Mm -hmm. And it's Christ's sacrifice of himself on the cross for us that is reflected in the, the self-sacrifice of the robot that right. brought me to tears or in those movie theater, those Star Wars movies or wherever someone gives everything that they have, their life, yeah. everything for someone else, that is for us, that's pointing to Christ. And that's, I think, why it's so important for us and so so valuable and emotional. Yeah. Did you ever see The Emperor's Club? I don't think so. No. Oh, you got to watch that. Yeah. It's about education and classical. And they've got this, they have this, this quote, well, I butcher it, but anyway, it's like at the, above the doors, you walk into this classroom, a boarding school, high school boys, I mm -hmm. think, and, and they have this one figure that he's totally lost to history, Shatruk Nihante or something, and he, he did some battles or conquerings, but he never gave anything, mm -hmm. so he's not remembered. Yeah. And I thought that captures something, too. It's like, if you don't give to something in your life, there's no meaning there, right? It's not... I mean, we could, because we can think like the American dream is just acquiring consumerism, doing more. But I mean, certainly, I, I think that is part of our history, too, is like we have said that. I think that is in our DNA to be a, a giving country. I think we're generous in many ways in, in supporting other nations and stuff. We could always do better, more. But um, 
but we also have to struggle with the capitalistic. I mean, if you look at our origins, mm -hmm. you know, we just, I was recently going through a history book and it was like, man, this country was wide open flat yeah. for the word go. I mean, you had those escaping religious persecution with the pilgrims and stuff, but then you got those coming over, you know, and just natural resources and tobacco mm -hmm. and, you know, it's just like wide open. And that's kind of fun too, but yeah. it's gotta be balanced, yeah. right? The, the summer, my family and I, we went on an RV trip across the country, mostly New England and the mid-Atlantic states. And we, there are a number of places that we, we stopped and we visited uh, people. And one of the folks that we visited was, I think it was William Gillette. He was the, um, the Sherlock Holmes, the actor who played Sherlock mm -hmm. Holmes most, most prominently. Mm -hmm. And he had built a castle uh, on overlooking a river. I think it was in Connecticut, if memory mm -hmm. serves me. Uh, and we toured his castle and learned about him. He had a bunch of cats. Uh, he was a bit of a recluse. And... Um, built up a train for himself. He loved trains. And, mm -hmm. But his life seemed to me, from my perspective, I'm sure you know, this is, I didn't know him, um, but from the, the bit that we saw, seemed to end at himself uh, and to not go beyond himself. Um, and so we left there and we, I, mean, I can't even remember fully his name, right? He was like a world-renowned <laughs> actor, right? Uh -huh. uh, and then later that week, we went to visit... Um, Father McGivney's grave, uh, uh -huh. founder of the Knights of Columbus. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we went to the church, um, I think it's St. Mary's, where he founded in the basement there um, this amazing fraternal yeah. order, which yeah. cares for so many people. And he gave his life uh, to all of this. Um, and then, you know, the the miracle, you know, that's now counted toward his, his sainthood and all the things that came together and just how he's served in his whole life. And so that type of life sticks with you, you know, as somebody who's, who's, you know, looking at lives that are lived, some, yeah. some better than others. It's not the lives that are for self, you know, it is the lives that are emptied in service of others that yeah. are, are, those are the inspiring ones. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I know we've got to be wrapping it up soon here, but uh, <laughs> I, I was taken to in your conversation, Brother John, that, um, that, you were asking like the young students, your tutors and things like, um, like, what do you notice about this or like this teaching, I mm -hmm. guess, or topic? Yeah. And, and you're trying to cultivate a curiosity and the, the word that caught me, you said wonder. Yes. Talk about that. Yeah, for sure. So wonder, uh, wonder is this, this basis of um, exploration. Um, I think that in, in my personal life, in my education, wonder was snuffed out of me at some point mm -hmm. in time along the way. I loved reading, I loved learning. And then by the time I finished college, I just remember not wanting to crack another book and just being exhausted and uh, having no at desire. At the end of college. At the end okay. of college, that wonder had been stomped out of me. Um, but wonder is, you know, is the express that's the desire to know more, just the marvel to sit back and, um, you know, to, to examine. And so, so you know, what, what, do we, what we do in Catholic liberal education is we show something beautiful worth emulating. And then you can wonder about in the expertise, the beauty, the truth, beauty, and goodness that's, that's held within there. And it inspires you to replicate that, to, to learn about, and then to then create with your own, once you've achieved mastery, if it's handwriting, if it's painting, uh, mm -hmm. if it's, um, 
use mastery of a language, you know, writing, um, mm. whatever it is that wonder, if it's knowledge of a, a particular topic, if it's uh, about birds or uh, about World War II or whatever happens to be, that wonder then is that, that fuel that you know, feeds the fire of desire to learn and just this mastery of the material and connections from one thing to the nether, to the next, to the next. I mean, there's, there's one child in our school that he knows seemingly every detail about every war that, <laughs> that has ever existed. And he'll sit there and he'll tell you about it because he wonders about those and he loves yeah. those things. And, yeah. and, there, and if you ask any kid, you know, there's something that they have wonder about. Uh, but right. oftentimes as adults, we don't have that. We don't wonder anymore. We've lost yeah. that. Uh, and so Catholic liberal education fosters that and says, no, there is a sense of wonder. And it is that sense of wonder about God himself that is the key to unlocking you know, our faith life uh, with him and our relationship with him. Because if I didn't wonder, you know, why would I have a relationship with God? Why would I, I wouldn't wonder how I ought to live my life or wonder what, um, you know, what God is about or what he wants for me. Um, those things don't come to my mind. I just, I am focused on making a paycheck, you know, buying the things I want to buy uh, and that's it. But the wonder opens you up and unlocks to something greater than yourself. Yeah, and just like, I guess it begins maybe with noticing and just like I hear like parents talk about this and fathers, like just observing their children as they develop and grow, you know, just a sense of, it seems like it leads them to like bigger questions and think bigger and seeing their child make decisions and things. Yeah, yeah we had one family who, who joined our school, their child was at a archdiocese school. I said, before he went to the school, he loved sketching birds. Mm -hmm. He loved observing birds and sketching them. And then in that school, they had iPads and tablets and, and all of the mm -hmm. things. The kids were on screens. And he said their, their son had stopped doing that. He just kind of dropped his pencil and sketch pad and was focused on the, playing the games that were on the, yeah. on the iPad. And then when they left that school and came to our school where we have no technology, uh, he said right. that wonder and that desire to sketch again returned in his son oh, wow. and the desire to just observe and and to you know just to record what he was observing in, in the world around him i remember i did a podcast with uh, the bishop of lincoln and um just forgetting his name i said bishop conley yeah conley yeah. and uh and he went to the kansas i forgot university of kansas or Kansas. Mm -hmm. yeah the pro the classics yeah. program there and they they had uh, this is back in the 70s and it it had all these converts to Catholicism, and he did become Catholic, eventually a priest and a bishop after school. But um, he talked about this that sense of wonder. It was in the motto of the school mm. about uh, something about looking at the stars and with wonder and things. But I remember I kept asking him, I just, I wanted to, I said, now it was the material, right, that these professors were teaching. They were teaching like these great classics, right? If we could just, get people to read and study these, you know, that would lead to this conversion or whatever. But he, he would not relinquish this point. And he, he was just, he was, it was gentle. And I finally realized, okay, I was probably getting the point he was making. He said, he kept coming back to the, the, the gift that these teachers had, these three mm -hmm. professors, that they could co cultivate this wonder, mm -hmm. that they could present this material. And it was absolutely essential, you know, to that. And, um, 
I remember it struck me. I always think like with football or something, if you just get the right coach, right, you can you just get the right, right. coach. <laughs> like, yeah. But it's more than that. Well, yeah, it's, it is. It's like giving, you know, you can give a team the playbook. Uh-huh. It, it could be the best, the greatest playbook yeah. in the world, but if the coach can't communicate that and right, teach right. that to the players, right. then it's not worth anything, right? Yeah. And so you yeah. could take the greatest works of civilization and plunk it into a school, but if the teachers can't unlock that by asking the right questions. And, and I'm, I'm trained as an executive coach, a leadership coach. And so, so I understand the, the power of questions uh, yeah. and to ask the right question at the right time and the right, right. tone and, and asking the right questions then invites them in and attracts them like, you know, honey, uh, you know, honey. Um, and, uh, and that's the key there. Yes. It's the combination of the two. It can't, it's not just the materials, but it's the philosophy this uh, liberal arts philosophy combined with these materials, Catholic liberal arts, uh, liberal education combined with the materials, the classical materials, that unlocks the power of it. Yeah, I thought Pope Francis had a great insight recently with, uh, when, you know, when chat GPT came out, mm-hmm. I, I got on there and I said, I said, you know, give me a homily from whatever, 20th, 18th Sunday of ordinary time using and I even specified maybe like the first and second reading or something. And uh, and it cranked out a pretty good homily. Mm-hmm. And then they even had a button that said, do you want to dress it up some? You know, I forgot the word it used. And it maybe added a little story or something. But I, I was like really impressed because I thought, you know, you get some kind of liberal schlock that mm-hmm. was like really dumbed yeah. down. I kind of felt like a hack because I thought, I, mean, I didn't use the homily, mm-hmm. but I'm just saying, I can see myself saying some of these things. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and Pope Francis said recently, he said, yeah, you can't use chat GPT to, to get, you know, to come up with a homily. He said, because it hasn't passed through the human heart. It mm-hmm. has to pass through one heart to another. Yeah. And I thought that was a really, you know, it's got to be, I'm not sure the full reason for that, but it's like, yeah. uh, you know, you have to, I guess that communication of heart speaking to heart and, combination of lived reality and reflection and things. Yeah, I agree. I mean, GBT is for as powerful a tool it is, it's dead, right? It's yeah. dead. Yeah. It is a thing. It is a tool that we man has created and uh, it doesn't have a soul. It is not lived reality. Yeah. It, it cannot it cannot communicate these things uh, because it's not human, right? It, right? You know, it's it's our shared humanness. Like, I, you yeah. know, you and I can you know, commiserate over not speeding, you know, because you've been in the car and I've been in the car. We've both been in traffic and, you know, and we both, we can connect on that. Yeah, Chat yeah. GPT has never sped, but it's never been in the car before. Right. And yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so there is that shared element um, and it doesn't have a soul either. And so there's probably an element there where. And maybe it's yeah. that struggle to do good too, mm-hmm. or that struggle to, yeah. yeah, that's so compelling to everybody. Mm-hmm. Like we have a shared problem with sin mm-hmm. and our weakness and everything. And we have a shared uh, redemption, you know, salvation given to us that we could be united in one degree and even a bigger united, you know, in holiness and mm-hmm. stuff. But yeah, there's something about that, you know, that shared experience that draws us. Yeah. I was struck too, what you said about the, uh, Brother John asked you about apologetics mm-hmm. and and you said, you know, we have, was it Peter says you'd be prepared to give a reason for our faith, yeah. and and when you start doing apologetics to think of the why, mm-hmm. why do we believe this? And you know it helps us to make it our own faith. But I was struck too in terms of learning, 
it helps you to link it to others. That it's, it's not just, as you, I think you said, superficial memorization of facts. Because mm -hmm. I just read this from a secular source. It was just like a life hack of memory tips. Mm -hmm. They just say, connect it to other things you know. Yes. And it's much easier to remember. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I said, I just read this on the internet. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the beauty of what a Catholic liberal education is. It is going really deep and, and wide in the thing that you're learning about. So, for example, you may be learning about uh, Christopher Columbus, mm -hmm. right? And in your humanities course, you are, uh, you're covering the history and what he did. But also you're talking about his faith and what, and what that looked like and what was going on in the background with regard to uh, Isabella, Queen Isabella of Spain, Ferdinand, what they were mm -hmm. doing, uh, what was going on more broadly there with regard to, to faith and yeah. what were the Muslims doing at that time, what right. was going on within Christendom. Uh, and, um, but also you're talking about science and you're talking about what was the ship like uh, or how did he navigate you know, across the ocean right. uh, or you know, what were the you know, geopolitical things? What, what would that ocean journey have been like? What, what might it he have seen off the off the bow of his ship yeah. when he was uh, and so all of these things combined together to form like uh you know a three-dimensional experience in learning something that that jumps leaps off the page where you can say ah I, I can see myself i'm experiencing what it is to be like christopher columbus and then you never forget that right you may forget some of the yeah. details but you're in there yeah. and now it's locked into your memory uh, and so that's how you really truly understand something and comprehend. And then you can just add to that. You can just add to that knowledge that you've gained and to build it and strong, strengthen and become an expert in it by virtue of that. You've got that, that thing, you know, that skeleton in your, in your memory that you, you can hang all of these things on. And in fact, that's one of the key points of Catholic liberal education is that what we use is a historical timeline. And I'd mentioned the example of our kindergartners who can run through a hundred events in salvation history and in world history, because it's all one. Um, and, um, but what we do is every class year, there's a new time period, a historical time period that the students learn. Uh, and everything that they do, if it's art or music or whatever it is, pull, is pulled into that time frame. Uh, and yeah. so they experience, in fact, twice over the course of their, their time in, uh, K through eight, once as in the, you know, K through five, and then once again uh, in six through eight, where they go through the entire history of the world. Um, mm -hmm. And so they've got this framework built in where they understand what happened when and what was going on in scripture, in the church, in history around the world. And then they just keep adding and filling that thing in. So they've got a keen understanding yeah. of what happened when and how all those things are connected. And yeah, to me, it struck me too, just like maybe how our mind works. It's like, to get these facts it's like the kids are blessed with ease you know they, it's facil they're very good at memorizing mm -hmm. right so you get all this data points and then you can put it together fit it to a formula <laughs> yeah no <laughs> but, you're right yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right and so because they can memorize things yeah. so easily when they're a kid uh -huh. you feed them all the things that they're going to need for the rest of their life uh, yeah. and you build out that framework <laughs> you just keep dumping it in and they memorize it and memorize it and memorize it and then they've got it then it's locked in there and they can yeah. always use it wherever they go if it's poetry yeah. if it's times tables whatever it is uh that they've got in there and now that that will never leave them yeah yeah and i i guess too yeah you make, think of the art like what was going on in the art world, what kind of artistic works were being done, what were the themes, you know, how was Christianity expressed? Even like with St. Francis, right up until his time, Christ was usually portrayed like in a, 
a more kingly way. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of this transition period. Like he popularized the, the Franciscans, the Stations of the Cross, the humanity of Christ, mm-hmm. the crib and everything. But I mean, that that was like centuries before that happened. Mm-hmm. So it is, uh, yeah, it is expressed in culture and art and uh, literature, I guess, I presume as well. You know, I, I remember I went to World Youth Day in Rio and on Sunday after it was all over, uh, two of us, Doug Barry and I went to this, it's some kind of park on the, it was on the coast. And it wasn't just like a typical beach. It was like rocky and they had vegetation and stuff. And I remember like looking at the uh, the Atlantic Ocean and I had seen it, you know, from the American perspective. But some reason when I was there, I looked and I just thought of like, like the Portuguese explorers or whatever coming across this huge body mm-hmm. of water. Yeah. I mean, it's just something like you're just looking at the ocean just flat out there. And it's like, I mean, um, I, I don't know. Some reason it just hit me the wonder of, of expeditions. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, there was terrible, horrible slave trade. But there's also missionaries brought over that planted the faith and things. And uh, so... I don't know. Yeah, history's powerful. <laughs> it is. And as you're right, wonder is too. You know, it was the, first, you, know, the you never launch an expedition without someone first wondering, I wonder what's on the other side of that body of water, right? You, you, nothing gets started without, without yeah. them to bring back in the leadership and then, you know, setting a vision that says, if we can get over there, then we can, you know, explore, we can make conversions, yeah, we can yeah. get rich, you know, all of those yeah, things. And yeah. who's with me, you know, yeah, and everyone yeah. jumping on board with that. And so, yeah. so it's all tied together and you can't, right. you can't break it out separate from one thing to another. And so it's yeah. beautiful. It's just the way God created us. It's, it's the creation is, is interconnected. It's integral. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ali, for uh, talking with us and um, sharing with us. I encourage anyone to go to the website, learn more about the school and support them or you know uh, just try to spread the word about it i appreciate it thank you father Mark.